Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When Adam disobeyed God and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the consequences for his sin was catastrophic. The human race was plunged into a, a state of sinful depravity, and the earth, the natural world, was cursed by God. But God did not abandon his creation. In all the centuries that have passed since the fall, God has been sovereignly working to accomplish his plan of redemption. And in our passage this morning, Jesus uses two metaphors, salt and light, to reveal to us the role that his followers play in God's plan of redemption. So let's see what those are. First, Jesus says to his followers, you are the salt of the earth. And I want you to notice that Jesus gives no explanation for this saying. He doesn't elaborate. He simply says, you are the salt of the earth. Well, it seems clear that because Jesus didn't elaborate, because he didn't give any further explanation, that he knew his audience would understand the meaning of this saying. Well, what is it? What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? Now, I understand that most interpreters look at the ordinary, everyday uses of salt and apply that to believers. For example, salt was used in, the, in ancient times to preserve meat. Therefore, as salt, we are a preserving agent in this world that we somehow halt or slow down moral and spiritual corruption. Or salt is a condiment that makes food taste better. And as salt of the earth, we enhance the flavor of our culture, making living in this world more palatable. But I don't believe Jesus was referring to any of the ordinary, everyday uses of salt when he said, you are the salt of the earth. I believe Jesus was pointing to a singularly important truth about salt, a truth that most in that crowd would have immediately recognized. And they would have recognized the truth of his words because they were Jewish. They would have recognized the truth of his words because they were living under the ceremonial law of the Old Covenant. And in the ceremonial law of the Old Covenant, 
there was a special symbolic meaning attached to salt. And we know there was a symbolism attached to salt, and we know that it was wild, widely understood in Jesus' day because of two statements that we find in the New Testament. The first is in Mark chapter 9, verse 50. Jesus said this to his disciples, Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Again, he offers no explanation of what it means to have salt in yourself. He simply makes the statement and lets it stand. Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. And then in Colossians 4, 6, Paul gives this exhortation to the believers at Colossae. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Again, no explanation. He just lets his saying stand as it is. Well, how is it people in Jesus' day viewed salt as a symbol of peace and grace? Well, to understand that, we have to understand something about Judaism. We have to understand that in that day, Levitical priests act as, as intermediaries between God and Israel. And these priests performed a variety of ceremonial duties through which Israel found acceptance with God. It was through the performance of these duties in the temple that Israel experienced God's grace. And they found peace with God because they had been reconciled to God. When we look at the ceremonial duties in the temple that brought Israel acceptance with God, there was a necessary ingredient, an ingredient that was required by God, and that necessary ingredient was salt. I want to take you to a couple of examples. First, there is within the temple sanctuary an altar of incense. This altar of incense sat at the very front of the sanctuary, right in front of the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the sanctuary. And every day, twice a day, one of the priests in that temple would burn incense. And the smoke that rose up from that burning incense represented the prayers of Israel ascending to God in heaven. This was a significant day in the life of Israel. Luke tells us that on, at the appointed times of the burning of incense, devout Jews would gather together in the courtyard of their temple, in the temple and offer their own prayers up at the same time. That's how significant it was. Well, God gave specific instructions, as he always did about worship, specific instructions about the making of the incense itself. He told Moses what spices to use, and he gave Moses the precise proportions of each of these spices that to be, were, were to be used in the compounding of this incense. And the final commandment that God gave Moses about the making of, the in, of this incense is it had to include salt. This is from Exodus chapter 30, verse 35. God said this, And make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure 
and holy. Then there were, were the various offerings that were offered in the, in the temple. Some of these offerings were offered to atone for Israel's sin. Some of them were made to express Israel's thanksgiving, thanksgiving to God because of his provisions. Some of the offerings were offerings of grain. Some of the offerings were sacrificed animals. But for all of these offerings, whether it was an offering of grain or a slaughtered beast, whether it was to atone for sin or to express thanksgiving for God, the same thing was required by God or he wouldn't accept it. And that thing that was required was salt. In Leviticus 2.13, we read this. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. Then it is Ezekiel chapter 43 verses 23 and 24. When you have finished purifying it, you shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. You shall present them to the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle salt on them and offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now the first verse I read to you about these ceremonies in the, in the temple was the one about making the incense. And here we see why salt was required for everything because, let me read that to you again, Exodus 30, 35, make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, Pure and holy. Salt in Judaism represented purity and holiness. And God required that inclusion of salt to be on every offering at every time the incense was burned or he would not accept it. That salt made the offerings and it made the burnings of, of, of incense holy and pure. That sprinkling of salt that purified the worship of Israel, Jesus now says, is what we are. He says, in the same way that salt purified the offerings and the incense, so we are salt of the earth. We purify something. And this is important. In Matthew 5.13, when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, the word earth is translated from a Greek word, gaia. It's spelled G-E if you ever want to look it up. Gaia. And the literal meaning of this word Gaia that is translated earth as earth is this. It is earth, ground, land. When Jesus told his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, he wasn't saying you are the salt for the inhabitants of the earth. He wasn't saying you are salt for, the law, for lost humanity. He was saying, you are salt, you are the sprinkling of salt for the earth itself, for the planet itself. The earth, when it was originally created, pleased God. And it pleased God because it reflected the goodness of God. In the six days that God took to create the world, we have the record in Genesis 1, that God would pause 
as the work was ongoing, and he would go back and survey what he had done that day. Six times it's recorded that God looked it over and saw that it was good. At the end of the sixth day, after God's creative work was done, he surveyed everything that he had created in this world, and he saw that it was very good. The earth was a paradise of bounty and harmony and beauty. It was good. But then Adam sinned. When Adam sinned, he and all of his descendants were plunged into a state of sinful depravity and death. But Adam's sin did not just affect his descendants. When Adam sinned, God also cursed the earth. We read this account of God's curse of the earth in Genesis 3, 17 and 18. God said this to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Because of Adam's sin, the world would no longer produce only the plants that were good for food for God's creatures. Now it would produce thorns and thistles and bitter weeds it would produce things that would be a nuisance to us, some things that would even be poisonous to us. Because of Adam's sin, no longer would man and animal live together in peace and harmony. Do you remember when God gave Adam the task of naming the animals and all the animals were brought to Adam? None of them were afraid. None of them were apprehensive about coming into man's presence, but now they would be. Now man and animal would live and apprehension of each other because now man would be required to kill animals to atone for his own sin. Because of Adam's sin, no longer would all the creatures of the earth be herbivores. Now, animals would live by hunting and killing each other. Because of Adam's sin, no longer would the earth be a sterile and safe habitation for God's creatures. Now, the earth would produce sickness and disease and death. The prophet Isaiah describes the curse of the earth this way. This is Isaiah 24, verses 5 and 6. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. But that's not the end of the story for the earth. In Romans chapter 8, Paul reveals that God's plan of redemption is not just for the elect. His plan of redemption is not just for us. God's plan of redemption is also for the earth. When Christ returns and God's saints are resurrected in glory, creation will be restored. When Christ returns, man and nature will become once again what God intended. Man will be conformed perfectly to the character of God. And the earth will be restored to fully reflect once again the goodness of God. But until then, the earth languishes in weakness and corruption. 
And I've said all that to say this. We are to think of the earth as an offering that's being presented to God. An offering that is cursed, but somehow is made acceptable to God. And that thing that makes this cursed earth acceptable to God is this. It is the presence of God's saints who are scattered across the nations. We are the sprinkling of salt on this world that makes it acceptable to God. It is our presence here that makes it acceptable. Well, I said earlier that salt was used to make the offerings and the incense acceptable because it was pure and holy. Well, how then can we be salt for the earth? I, I know some of you pretty well, some I don't. But I, I can say this with absolute certainty. There is no one in this sanctuary that is pure and holy. Not experientially anyway. We still carry with us, even though we're saved, even though we are in Christ, we still carry with us that old sin nature. And we still sin. But while we are not pure and holy experientially, we are pure and holy positionally. Because you are in Christ. Because you have received Him as your Savior and your Lord. God has imputed to you the righteousness and holiness of Christ. When God looks at me, He does not see a sinner. When God looks at me, He sees a saint. He sees someone who has been purified by the work of Christ. So how should we respond to this knowledge that we are the salt of the earth? How should we respond to this knowledge that it is our presence in this cursed world that makes it acceptable to God? Well, we should strive to be the best salt we can be. We should pursue in our lives purity and holiness. And then Jesus says to his followers, you are the light of the world. Now, Jesus' audience, because they were Jewish, they were also quite familiar with the Old Testament. They would have understood that the imagery of light is used to describe, one, the nature of God. Now, here light is used as a metaphor. We're not literally light. It's just saying we somehow resemble some of the properties of light. But when the Bible says God is light, it's not saying he is like God light. God in his very nature, in the essence of his being, is light. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is the father of lights. His glory is his light. Well, not only do the scriptures tell us that God's nature is light, but it also says that all of those good and pure and holy things that are associated with God, they are also light. The Bible says that God's word is light. That truth is light. That life itself, particularly a life that is lived in a way that is pleasing to God, that is light. 
And here Jesus tells us that we are the light of the world. We are the light to the rest of humanity. And we are light only because we are in Christ. We are light only because God has imparted into our hearts the light of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul wrote this, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, you are light in the Lord. And then Jesus tells us, let your light shine before others. The light of Christ that is in us, we are to reflect that light. We are, we are to show the light of Christ here he says, by our good works. Yes, we are to speak the light of Christ. Yes, we are to share the gospel with our neighbors. But the emphasis here is primarily on not what we say, but on how we live. Show them by your good works. Here Jesus is telling us that the general tenor of our lives should reflect his light. We should reflect the light of Christ by obeying God's commandments. We should reflect the, the light of Christ by publicly showing our devotion to God in public worship. We should show the light of Christ by showing mercy to those who are in need. We should show the light of Christ by forgiving those who mistreat us. We should show the light of Christ by resisting sinful desires. But to what end? Why does Jesus tell us to so let your light shine? That the world might see the evidence of our faith. That they might see the proof that we truly do love Christ. Which God would then use to bring them to faith and repentance. Beloved, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of this world. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for the preaching of your word. and We pray that you would apply this to our hearts and minds, that we would be more faithful to you, that we would show our light, and that we would recognize that our presence is important in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.